I do not blame those who wish to rule, only those who are over-eager to serve. Hermocrates, a Greek diplomat from Syracuse at the peace talks in Sicily during the eighth year of the Peloponnesian War. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. Today we continue the sequence of episodes about the Peloponnesian War. In 431 BC, the city-states of the Greek world, long at odds with one another in the wake of the Allied victory over the Persians nearly five decades before, these cities began a fratricidal war that would go on for 27 years. The landscape of the conflict and of the Greek world itself changes over the course of those years. After just the first two years of the war, the characters of the play had changed out completely. Pericles, as well as the last memories of that old Greek brotherhood which stood united against a foreign enemy, all of these are dead and gone. New actors walk the stage and take into their hands the reins of Greek destiny. And everywhere there is destruction and bloodshed, betrayals and massacres, plague and disaster, and all-out warfare. According to Thucydides, in the sixth year of the war, the Athenians and their allies in southern Italy carried the war to the Liparan Islands in the Tyrrhenian Sea. These are a handful of small islands just off the southwestern coast of the boot of Italy and north of Sicily. Thucydides further describes the campaign on those remote islands, so far from Athens and Sparta, with these words, The Athenians laid waste their land. It's as if the Athenians at this point have said, so be it. Whatever scruples they had about life and liberty and ideals have gone out the window. Now they fight to survive. There is no right or wrong, and there is no going back. Yet also, everywhere the Athenians, once so formidable, find themselves suffering more and more reverses on the battlefield. And it also seems in the telling of the tale that even the gods were angered by this conflict, All throughout the pages of this history, Thucydides, even though he tries to explain everything rationally, everywhere he recounts episodes of natural disasters and omens that must have sparked superstitious interpretations. But before we continue with the tale of the war, please take a chance to visit my website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. There you can find some helpful maps and pictures, source lists for all my episodes, as well as some good books to read to support your knowledge about ancient Greece. You can also listen to episodes from all my other series about Western history and culture there as well. And if you want to support the podcast, please buy some Western Traditions merchandise from the shopping page or contribute directly through the PayPal or Patreon options. And now, let's return to the Peloponnesian War. As the seventh year of the war opened, it was simply more of the same. The war continued and spread in Sicily, as did the bloody revolution on the island of Corcora, and the Spartans, now led by Aegis, the son of King Archidamus, invaded Attica just as they had done year after year, as unimaginatively and predictably as you might expect the Spartans to do. 
the pages of this history are here filled with references to multiple simultaneous combat operations in various theaters of the war, as if each side was simply lashing out in all directions with no clear strategy. The inertia of the war now has taken over completely. Most of these engagements I will pass over and simply focus on the most important battles and other events. Still, this seventh year would mark an important turning point, especially in the history of Spartan warfare. One of the Athenian generals, Demosthenes, not to be confused with the great Greek statesman of a century later, this Demosthenes led a fleet out of Athens, originally intended to support the revolution in Corcyra. Now, according to Thucydides, Demosthenes always intended the fleet to stop at a place called Pylos, a little promontory on the west coast of the Peloponnesus, and fortify it. But Thucydides also says that a storm forced the fleet to wait out the stormy seas there. Coincidence or not, Demosthenes convinced the other generals on the expedition to fortify the place and turn it into a base for operations against Sparta. Now, Pylos was an unimpressive place for glory and war. 45 miles distant from Sparta itself and without any resources or any real advantageous terrain, there did not seem to be any strategic purpose to establishing a base there. In fact, some of Demosthenes' companions wryly remarked that, you know, there are plenty of desert islands in this region that you could also fortify if you just want to spend the city's money that way. Nevertheless, Demosthenes convinced the soldiers and sailors there to construct fortifications. He also persuaded the other generals to leave him there. They were going to head on to Corcora, but to leave him there with five ships and about five or six hundred men total, of which less than one hundred were actual hoplite warriors. The rest were likely just sailors. Again, this does not seem like a propitious start to a military venture against almighty Sparta. Now, like all of us, Demosthenes' companions may have been less than impressed with his war strategy, but the Spartans, when they learned of the landing, they were alarmed. This was an armed invader on the coast of their peninsula. In Sparta, they were again celebrating another one of their festivals, which had so often in the past delayed the Spartans from acting on military threats in a timely fashion. This time, however, the Spartans did not hesitate. To start with, they immediately called off the ongoing invasion of Attica, which had really only just begun. The whole attack this year lasted just 15 days. They brought the troops back, closer to home, and they authorized an immediate attack on Pylos by both land and sea. They sent a land army to assault the hastily built fortifications on the promontory of Pylos, where Demosthenes waited with his 500 men. They also sent a fleet to land troops on the island of Sphacteria, just south of Pylos, planning on using this tiny island as a base to support a blockading squadron of ships and to completely cut off the Athenian invaders from resupply and reinforcements. Now you can look on this episode's page on my website, western-traditions.org, for a map of the local geography here involved. But the Spartans were not merely content with simply cutting the Athenians off from their supplies. They were led now by Brasidas, who for a few years here in this war will seem to be everywhere important. He commanded his ships to make an immediate landing on Pylos, not waiting for the siege to have an effect. He wanted to land behind the Athenian fortifications, and he did so, and they began the assault on the enemy directly. The Athenians, for their part, were hard-pressed. Demosthenes had not even supplied his garrison with any extra weaponry for his troops, most of whom were sailors and other support personnel, not heavily armed hoplites. 
In their haste, the Athenians had been forced to make shields and weapons out of portions of their ships and from their tools, breaking down oars and planks and the few iron implements they had in order to arm themselves. Yet they fought Brasidas and his men off when the Spartans attempted that landing. The Athenians attacked like men who knew that their only choice was battle or death. Brasidas was gravely wounded and passed out from his wounds, falling back into one of his ships, which just barely managed to push off from the shoreline before the fierce Athenians could capture it. Thucydides, in his writing, reflects on the irony of this situation. The Spartans were attacking by sea and the Athenians fighting by land, when each of their strengths had so long been in the opposite theater of war. The Athenians now, stout defenders though they might have been, would not have been able to last long against the Spartan onslaught, were it not for the sudden arrival of the Athenian fleet. Before the Spartans had surrounded the Athenians by land and sea, this resourceful Demosthenes had managed to send out two of his his precious ships to catch up to the fleet, moving away north to Corcora, and to inform them of his peril. They came back, just in time, dispersing the Spartan ships that they did not destroy, and bringing aid to the Athenians on Pylos. But there was one more critical thing about this little victory. Now that the the Athenians had regained control over the local waters, the Spartans on the island of Sphacteria to the south of Pylos, these Spartans were now trapped. Some 400 Lacedaemonian troops, actually. Now, I've mentioned before that I often simply say Spartan, where Thucydides often says Lacedaemonian. But here, the distinction is important. The author tells that of the 400 or so troops on the island, about 120 were full Spartiates, meaning, apparently, that these 120 men were members of the full Spartan knighthood. In other words, the breed of Leonidas and the the 300, those Spartans raised from childhood to be invincible warriors, just as I described in the 11th episode of this series, The Greek Sun. While the Lacedaemonians, that is, the whole population of Laconia, the the territory over which the city of Sparta ruled, in total, the population there may have numbered in the several to ten thousands in terms of the troops they could provide. The true Spartan warriors may have numbered at this time at little more than one thousand. There is not certainty about this, and the matter is not clear, but there must be some truth to this given the amount of sudden despair that overcame the Spartan assembly. Today, some scholars speculate that these 120 Spartan men on the island of Sphacteria may have been something like 10% or more of the entire true Spartan manhood, 10% of their best. Perhaps this explains the sudden despair and dismay in the capital of Sparta when they learned that these men were trapped on an island. Anyway, Sparta immediately sent to Athens and asked for an armistice in order to retrieve these troops, rather than let them be starved out or killed. There would be no glorious stand to the death on Pylos. The Athenians agreed to an armistice in order to negotiate. They, too, did not want to kill the Spartans on the island. They were too valuable as symbols. Generals like Demosthenes and statesmen like Cleon back in Athens, they wanted to humiliate the Spartans, not make martyrs of them, and wanted to gain every possible geopolitical advantage over their enemies. The Spartans had to hand over 60 ships in their nearby squadron in order to initiate the armistice, but they were given the right to to supply their men on the island with food while they waited for their envoys to, to go to Athens and return from negotiations. The ships, according to the agreement, 
those 60 ships were supposed to be handed back over to the Spartans, no matter what the result of the negotiations were. In Athens, some men wanted to use the incident to negotiate a full peace with Sparta, but Cleon argued for hard terms, and in the end, the Athenians, listening to him, demanded that the trapped Spartans be brought back to Athens as prisoners, at least temporarily, and that all territories lost by Athens in diplomatic exchanges of recent years, such as Nisse and Trozen and Achaea and others, must also be turned back over to the city. Then, and only then, could the two sides begin to negotiate a lasting peace. The Spartan envoys could not agree to this and had to return to Pylos in failure. The armistice came to an immediate end, of course. The Spartans asked for their ships back before hostilities resumed. The Athenians said, however, that the Spartans had violated some terms of the armistice and they would not be giving those 60 ships back. The Athenians then sat back and waited for the Spartans on the island to starve. They also continued to support their base on the promontory of Pylos, which they increasingly fortified. Desperate, the Spartans turned to their helots, their slaves. They offered freedom to any helot who could successfully smuggle in food, goods, or arms to the Spartans trapped on Sphacteria. So, many hopeful slaves sought to pilot ships across the channel from the Peloponnesian mainland to this tiny islet at night or whenever they might go unseen by the Athenians. As the days passed and the stubborn Spartans seemed unlikely to surrender as had once been hoped, Cleon, who had rejected the peace negotiation, started to look bad in the public eye. There was a sense in the public that Athens had missed a great opportunity to bring the Spartans to the table and to negotiate an end to this bitter war. So Cleon, in the assembly, lambasted Nicias, one of the generals present in Athens, and a rival of Cleon's. Cleon wanted to know why Nicias had not assaulted the island already and killed all the Spartans. After all, it's what Cleon would have done. To which Nicias essentially replied, Oh, go ahead. Take all the troops you want. I release them to you. You see, no one wanted to step foot on the island full of armed Spartans, no matter how small their number. It would be like jumping into a cage with an angry lion. Put on the spot, though, now... Cleon could no, find no way out of the challenge that he had inadvertently walked into. So he accepted, and he promised to invade and secure the island in 20 days. Now, you might be thinking that this is one of those wonderful episodes in life where a, a bragging blowhard finally has to put his money where his mouth is, and he gets shown up. You may have already come to dislike Cleon for his brutal stances. Maybe you see him as a reactionary buffoon and would love to see him suffer defeat for his foolish venture and boasting. I share the sentiment. But as history would turn out, he ended up successful here against all odds. Cleon took ship and sailed to join Demosthenes and his fleet standing watch around Sphacteria. By then, a small fire set accidentally or not by the Athenians had revealed much of the terrain of the small but heavily wooded island, and it had revealed to the Athenians for the first time just how many and how well armed the Spartan defenders were. But as formidable as the Spartan forces might have seemed, and remember that it only took 300 of them to stand against the whole Persian army at Thermopylae in 480 BC, the Athenians also knew now that the island defenders would have nowhere to hide, and as invaders, they would have less fear of being ambushed. The Spartans refused one last chance given to them to surrender, and then the Athenians invaded by sea and by land. 
Demosthenes knew that he wanted to avoid too much direct contact with the formidable Spartans, so he surrounded them with multiple small bodies of his own troops, some 200 in each unit, seizing all the high ground and then harassing the Spartans with missile fire from his light troops. Seeing the Spartans up close like this for the first time, and seeing these legendary men fall back, seeing them struggle, suddenly they were life-size, these Lacedaemonians, just men, not invincible heroes, but men just as prone to mortality as any other. And so the Athenians, amidst the rising dust of battle and the lingering smoke of the recent forest fires, they ramped up their attacks, shouting and screaming insults. Not content to fire darts and arrows, they even picked up rocks and hurled them down into the mass of armored Spartans, who now began a slow retreat to the southernmost extreme of the island, where they had prepared a fortified redoubt, where they would make their last stand behind a makeshift wall. But Messenian soldiers, allies of the Athenians, and longtime enemies of the Lacedaemonians, crept round the shores of the island, and they found a vantage point from which to fire missiles directly into the Spartan ranks. Now, seeing that a final attack by their troops would utterly destroy the Spartans, Demosthenes and Cleon halted their advance. They sent a message over to the trapped enemy soldiers, offering to accept their unconditional surrender. After consulting with the Spartans on the mainland, who had been kept from reinforcing them or saving them by the patriots of the Athenian fleet, the Spartans and the other Lacedaemonians on Sphacteria made history, and they surrendered themselves to the Athenians. Thucydides says it best himself in the fourth book of his history. Nothing that happened in the war surprised the Hellenes so much as this. It was the general opinion that no force or famine could ever make the Lacedaemonians give up their arms. Remember Leonidas's words from Thermopylae when the Persians had demanded that the Spartans lay down their arms. Molan labe, come and take them. The Athenians had indeed come and taken them freely and without resistance. The prisoners were loaded onto ships and taken to Athens. Their guards, soldiers who had fought in the recent engagement, could not believe that these sullen, defeated men were the same Spartans of legend. Thucydides records that one guard asked a prisoner if those Spartans that had fallen in the battle had been men of honor. The implication is probably clear to you that those who were aboard the ship as prisoners were something less than honorable. The Spartan prisoner swept this Spartan prisoner, sweat-stained, dirty, half-starved, and more tired than he had probably ever been in his life, answered thus, The arrow that could distinguish men of honor from the rest would be worth a great deal indeed. Athens was resurgent now. Though they had captured only about 400 enemy troops in the engagement at Pylos, to the Athenians, each prisoner seemed to count for many more because he was a Lacedaemonian. The Athenians held on to Pylos to use as a base for further operations in the Spartan rear, and they also sent an army against Corinth, a proud enemy of many years. They ravaged Corinthian territory freely as the Peloponnesians were still stunned and recovering from their loss at Pylos. They landed on the eastern coast of the Peloponnesus as well, and the Athenians also built an outpost there. And on the island of Corcyra, 
the Athenians brought the revolution to a bloody end in which the exiles of the aristocratic party were all executed as a group and their women sold into slavery. And they sent more forces to fight in Sicily. The following year was the eighth year of the war. Did the combatants know, any of them, that it might last 19 years more? They might have been given such presentiments by the omens of nature. That year, as if to prove all the ancient superstitions which the rationalists of the age were trying so hard to demonstrate as the result of merely natural forces, that year there were multiple earthquakes around the Greek world and a solar eclipse as well. Athens, though, riding high on a tide of victories, now sent an invasion fleet to the island of Kithra, just off the coast of Sparta itself, and seized control of it. Amazingly, the Spartans, who knew just how valuable that island was for controlling all Spartan access to the outside world, the Spartans did not even attempt to take the island back. So harsh a blow to their confidence had the Athenians dealt them at Pylos the previous year. Nor had they put up more than a tepid defense when the Athenians, using this island of Kithra as a base for naval operations, proceeded to make multiple landings and attacks on their seacoast. One reverse this year, though, upset the Athenian assembly greatly. On Sicily, where the Athenians had been aiding their allies against the city of Syracuse, the opposed forces made peace, and the Athenians were all sent home. The returning Athenian generals, having failed to continue to the war to defeat Syracuse and to seize control of that island, these generals were banished. The Democratic Assembly of Athens was a harsh and unforgiving taskmaster. And now, surrounded and harassed, threatened with being cut off from the outside world, now the Spartans made their boldest move ever. Unable to counter all the multiple threats aimed at them and their allies, the Spartans gave Brasidas, now recovered from his wounds at Pylos, they gave Brasidas command of 1,700 heavy infantry for a very special, if desperate, mission, one designed to turn things in the Peloponnesian favor in the only way possible. He marched these 1,700 men fast north through mainland Greece all the way to the territory of Thrace. Of these 1,700 infantry, about 700 were helots. In their desperation, the Spartans had begun to arm the slaves, but it was also a wise political move. They, after all, took 700 of the most capable, able-bodied, and potential rebels and sent them far away. And remember, this army of 1,700 would have been accompanied probably by thousands of support personnel, light troops, and so on, many of whom would have also been helot slaves. Anyway, Brasidas made a fast march through difficult territory and reached Thrace, where he began operations against Athenian interests there. Remember that the Athenians had seized Potidaea earlier in the war and maintained a presence in the north, near Thrace in Macedonia. Brasidas really peaked here at this moment of the war, here in Thrace. He was brilliant everywhere, both at war and in diplomacy. He responded quickly to threats and seized every opportunity at gaining advantage over the Athenians, and he did so with a motley army composed not only of his Spartan heavies, but also of freed slaves, light troops, sordid allies, cavalry, even the lowest quality of troops found a place under his command. Brasidas made do, and he conquered. He also showed himself to be a fair orator, this Spartan, this man of such taciturn heritage. At the city of Acanthus on the Athos Peninsula, famous today for its Orthodox Christian monasteries, Brasidas convinced, 
rather than fought the defenders of the city, who were at odds as to whether to receive him or to fight him. He turned public speaker on the spot and spoke to his listeners of his mission, quote, to free Hellas, unquote. Remember that Hellas is the proper Greek term for Greece and all the Greek people who call themselves Hellenes. Empire we do not aspire to, Brasidas told the Acanthians. It is what we are laboring to bring to an end. And the Acanthians were moved enough that they opened their doors and turned against Athens, as did many other northern cities that summer. Somehow, just when things seemed darkest for Sparta, Brasidas had revived their hopes. Meanwhile, things also turned out worse for Athens in their campaign in Boeotia, where they lost multiple battles as well as the entire city of Delium. Now, Thucydides mentions no such names in his account, probably because the men involved did not become more well-known until after his own death, but we learn elsewhere from later sources that here at the Battle of Delium, one young aristocrat fighting on horseback by the name of Alcibiades, about whom we will hear more later, this Alcibiades admired the battle skills of an older man by the name of Socrates. This same Socrates, according to the story, had saved young Alcibiades' life in the opening battle of the war during a retreat at Potidea. And this same Socrates, surviving the long war, would later go on to join the ranks of the philosophers and to confound the authorities in Athens and to suffer death for his teachings. But more on Socrates soon. Here also, Thucydides speaks of himself in the, thir in the third person as the commander sent north from Athens to the Thracian city of Amphipolis, which Brasidas had besieged. Now, Brasidas knew that Thucydides' fleet was nearing with reinforcements for the city, so he put on his diplomat hat and offered easy terms to the besieged populace. Any Athenian or native of the city would be allowed to stay and enjoy all of their property unharmed, and any who chose to leave would be given five days to depart unmolested and to take any or all of their property with them. After hearing these words, these generous terms, the populace opened the portals of the city to Brasidas. A few hours later, Thucydides arrived with his fleet to find the city already in Spartan hands. For this failure, Thucydides would be exiled. He would return to his family's estate in Thrace and there begin composing his history of the war. Meanwhile, Brasidas continued victorious in all his doings. He marched out of Amphipolis and captured the Athenian stronghold in the city of Aeon, also in Thrace. When the Athenians manned the parapet of their last redoubt in the city, he offered 30 silver minae, that's, that's more than 30 pounds of silver, he offered this sum to the first man to reach that parapet and drive off the defenders. But when he saw the Athenian defense crumbling, he himself dashed forward, climbed the wall, and engaged the Athenians hand to hand. When the Athenians had finally been driven off and the victory was his, Brasidas donated the silver to the temple of Athena in the city. This rolling tide of Spartan victories led the Athenians to agree to a one-year armistice. But it was an armistice not very well respected, especially not by Brasidas, who continued his maneuverings in the north, seizing towns after the armistice state and otherwise conniving to stay one step ahead of the Athenians and beat them at their own game. Regardless, in the following year, the tenth year of the war, the armistice came to an official end and hostilities resumed. 
Now, Cleon, the Athenian statesman, perhaps puffed up with his own unbelievable victory over the Spartans at Pylos a few years before, he led a fleet and an armed landing force north to Thrace, intent on confronting Brasidas again, now in a different theater, and taking back those cities lost to him. Cleon started by storming the city of, of Tyrone, which Brasidas had assaulted and taken before the armistice. Cleon was again victorious here. Then he turned his eyes to the city of Amphipolis, where Brasidas and his mixed forces awaited. When Cleon neared Amphipolis and his forces prepared to attack, Brasidas sallied forth with his troops to strike the first blow. Thucydides does not specify how exactly, but Brasidas was wounded in this fight and carried away from the field of battle. Cleon, too, surprised by this sudden assault, fled before the enemy forces, but he was overtaken and killed. Brasidas survived his wounds, only long enough to learn that he had been victorious. Then he gave up the ghost and joined the ancient brotherhood of Spartan heroes, like Leonidas. The people of, Amph of Amphipolis were so impressed with Brasidas and his sacrifice that they buried him in their marketplace. They declared him to be the real founder of their city, and then they destroyed all the monuments and records of their original founder. Such was their admiration for this brave Spartan. But now, after this brief recommencement of hostilities, both sides, Athenian and Spartan, felt the exhaustion of war renewed. The Spartans, led by, clean, by King Plasteonax, forgive the pronunciation there, who was another new name to rise and take the place of those who had fallen or lost their position in this long war, he agreed to a formal peace treaty with the Athenians, who were now led by Nicias. He no longer had to contend with the late Cleon in the assembly. Initially, both sides agreed to a 10-year peace treaty. The terms are laid out in detail in Thucydides' text, who appears to have had available a word-for-word -word copy of the treaty. But some allies of the Spartans were not content with the other terms of the treaty, which returned many cities, including Amphipolis, to the Delian League, which was really just the Athenian Empire by now. However, the Spartans made their allies' protests ineffective by going one step further, and they negotiated an actual alliance with Athens, an alliance set to endure for 50 years. With the Athenians and the Spartans now in one alliance, no other power in Greece would dare move against them. This pact is known to history as the Peace of Nicias. Now, there is one curious term of this temporary alliance between Sparta and Athens which may strike your modern democratic ears as disturbing. The Athenians agreed in the treaty to help the Spartans put down any helot uprising, so the promoters and defenders of democracy in Athens would aid the Spartans in suppressing their slave class should that become necessary. But we have already seen that Athens had, for all intents and purposes, Athens had long ago virtually given up all pretense of supporting quote-unquote democracy. And really, it should be no surprise to anyone watching modern politics that it is really all about power, and no one on the world stage really cares about human rights or dignity. Regardless, this term of the agreement was inevitable. Sparta could not ally itself with someone if they feared that that same someone might stir up a helot rebellion and weaken them. And the helots would not dare to rebel anyway if they knew that the Spartans had such a powerful ally. Once the agreement was ratified, the exchange of prisoners began. 
So that spring, in the eleventh year of the war, as the world came back to life and mystery rites recalled the return of Persephone to the upper world and the rising of Dionysius, the god who had died and was now reborn, as everyone put down their arms and contemplated the silence of peace, four hundred Lacedaemonian prisoners emerged from Athenian dungeons and made their way back home, if, like any of us, they could ever really go home again. enjoying these episodes about the Peloponnesian War. In the next episode in this sequence, the peace of Nicias will end unexpectedly, and the two sides, Sparta and Athens, their societies now altered irreversibly by decades of both peace and conflict, these two sides will resume the war, and one of them will be brought to their knees, utterly defeated. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.